following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. I was just scratching out a few things here, why in the world we're trying to meet together as a group of men with Warrior's Heart. So I just wrote these things down. If I were to think of the very simplest idea that I could put down on our objective, it's this first one here, multiplication of men making an impact on other men. That's basically what we're trying to do. It's really not just to get smarter about the Bible or smarter with our skills or more gifted with the things we do because we just want to do one thing, and that's reproduce reproducers. And um, this thing I, of what we do here on the mornings is we want to make sure you're going to be able to put stuff together and package it and pass it on to somebody else. Uh, even if the God put on your heart one or two or three different guys during your time with Warrior's Heart, and you begin to meet with them and teach them what you've been taught, so that our main objective with this whole thing is that we can see the city of Houston change in the name of Jesus Christ. So that might seem uh, simple, and then at the same time it might seem lofty, but that's what that's what we're trying to do here at Warrior's Heart. So if you keep that in mind and pray about that, Think about it, and as you mull, uh, mull over in your mind the things that we are learning, then that would be fabulous. <clears throat> some of the things that we share together in common as men, and one of them is uh, sometimes we have in our past a moment we've been overconfident. That is, our talent or our ability or our gifts didn't quite match up with the demands of the particular situation. And part of that is in my life when I, when I thought that, you know, there's, there's got to be some kind of sport I could be good at. And during that time when I had this uh, this thought of grandeur, uh, one of my friends invited me to play play uh, racquetball with him. And I said, racquetball? I'd never heard of that. He said, oh, you really like it. And so he, he brought me down to his racquetball club, and he loaned me one of his rackets. He explained the game to me, and, and it was really something. It was really fun. We had a really great time, and we were hitting the ball around, and he tried to show me what to do. And he says, well, why don't we play a game? I says, well, that, you have kind of an advantage here. And um, he said, no, no, that's okay, I'll take it easy. And uh, I don't know if he took it easy or not, but I beat him, and I never had played before. And he says, are you sure you never played? I said, no, honestly, I never even played before. And so we played again, and I beat him again, and and uh, boy, I thought, boy, this is pretty cool. Maybe God created me to be a racquetball player. <laughs> so the first thing I did was I, I left, and I, I signed up for a membership at the racquetball club, and I bought a racket and bought some uh, of those racquetballs, and Set up a time to come back and uh, played my friend again, and we just had a great time. He beat me a couple times. I beat him a couple times, and he introduced me to some of the staff people there. And one of the staff people said, yeah, I understand you really like a racquetball. And I said, oh, I love it. And I said, uh, yeah. And he, and he says, well, let's play sometime. I said, sure. So I thought, man, I'm going to play a staff member at the racquetball club. And so I showed up at the appointed time, and we played, and we were pretty even. But I was thinking to myself, man, I'm beating this guy, and he's, he's a staff member of the racquetball club. And I tell you, you know, when you're a Christian and you know that you go before God and gives you gifts, there's no need to be humble because God gave it to you. And so you try to magnify the stewardship of these great natural gifts. And I had, I mean, I had no clue about rankings with regard to racquetball. And some of you guys who are here, you understand those rankings. I, I had no idea that A, B, and C, and I, I wasn't even good enough to be on the C list, but I just thought I was good because for some reason I was playing people that let me beat them. And I played the staff guy one game. He just only had time for a game, and I beat him, and he was all sweaty, and I was pretty fresh. And we walked out of our <clears throat> racquetball court, and out of the next court, 
that little door, this guy came out and he's like six foot three. And he's really tall, but he's bent over, really discouraged. His racket was hanging from the lanyard on his wrist and he was just dripping. And from behind him, a woman came out and she looked like about the age of my mom. And she waved at the guy and says, hey, thanks for the game. And then I looked away real quickly to pretend like I didn't see her. Because she and I were the only two people there. And she said, hey, hi, how you doing? And I said, oh, great. And she says, hey, I see you got a racquetball racket there you want to play. I've got some time left on my court. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And um, she says, my name's Shirley. I says, my name's Bruce. And so we got into her court. I says, well, ladies first, why don't you go ahead and serve? And she says, oh, no, I'm all warmed up. Go ahead. So I got up there to the serving line, and I was bouncing the ball so that it would be rhythmic with the beat of my heart. And I wound up, and I smacked that thing as hard as I could right off the front wall, and it dribbled out of Coffin Corner. Shirley never even went for the ball. She just says, good point, Bruce, good point. And so I thought, yeah, you haven't seen anything yet, lady. So I, again, bouncing that ball, thinking to myself, man, I, I can't wait to slaughter this lady. And I hit that ball as hard as I could and ricocheted off the front wall, off to the right to see how good her forehand was. And honestly, man, I do not remember even seeing her. She was moving like a cat. I didn't even see her hit the ball. I just heard her hit the ball because she got to it that fast and it went off the front wall and man, that thing was something I missed. And I, I, was, I was in shock that she moved so fast. And, and then so I just took my position on the receiving end. She went up to the, to the line. She said, service. I said, sure. And you remember that point that I won, the first part? That was the only point that I had won the entire game. She had me running around that court so fast and in so many directions. I was so exhausted, just dripping with sweat. Then she turned to me with a big smile and she says, Game point. I said, I know, Shirley, just serve the ball. <laughs> it was right at that moment, I don't know why I never saw it before, but on the back of her shirt when she turned to serve, on the back of her shirt it says, National Grand Slam Racquetball Championship. She was nationally ranked as a woman in her age class. I didn't even bother going after that ball. When she hit that last game point, it sounded like a shotgun going off. And man, that thing went so fast, I didn't know that ball could go so fast in such a short period of time. You know, I haven't played racquetball since. <laughs> Every once in a while when I'm cleaning my garage, I see that racket, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a good reminder, God, don't let me, let me give this away so I can remember humility. When overconfidence takes over, and I think I'm really something when there's a lot of people out there who are a lot better at something that they're really good at. Well, in a lot of ways, that's kind of a microcosm of what happens when sin enters our life. Overconfidence, we really think more of ourselves than we should, and honestly, we leave God out of the picture. So there's a sense where overconfidence, as we think about talent, gifts, and ability, that really doesn't measure up to the standard that the circumstances require at the moment. And as a result of that, we get ourselves in trouble because we end up depending more upon ourselves with our confidence in who we are and what we might be able to do, and we leave God completely out of the picture. So sin has a way of coming into the camp and messing things up. It is one situation here in the life of Joshua 
the closest we can get to an imperfection that this man has. So many times when we read through the scriptures and we see the lives of people presented to us, their faults and their failings and their sin are there and we remember them as marks against somebody who was otherwise incredibly great. From the life of Joshua, he's one of those few guys in the Bible that's, boy, there's really no problems, really no sin, no difficulties. This is the one thing that kind of is the blemish on his life. He wasn't paying attention like the rest of the nation of Israel. So exuberant. After that incredible victory over Jericho, they're thinking to themselves, how could we not lose with God on our side? So this is verse 1 of chapter 7, and it's very, very insightful. It gives to us a backdrop for the entire uh, 27 verses of chapter 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things, Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now this verse is incredibly instructive because we have here suddenly the sense that one man sins, but an entire nation gets punished. One man sins and his entire family is discredited. His entire family is discredited and the entire tribe of the family is discredited. So the entire nation has this huge blemish on their reputation. Now, when sin enters into the picture, what this passage of Scripture is trying to teach us is it's so serious before God, we cannot ignore it. And for us as men who are responsible for the lives of other people, who are trying to be influential in the lives of other people, this is a great lesson for us. It's not just a guilt lesson by any stretch, but it does teach us about the practicality of what sin is, its impact, and how in the world God wants us to address it. So we turn our attention to the next verses here in verses 2 through 9 of Joshua chapter 7. And there's this amazing sense where defeat confirms a time when we need to reassess or assess our spiritual condition in the situation that we are in. So after Jericho, they go to the next uh, logical military conquest that stands before them, the town of Ai, much lesser of a city, not nearly as well known, not nearly as well fortified, doesn't have the reputation that the people in Jericho had. It's up on a hill. They would be at a disadvantage that way, but the city was built there for a reason. So Joshua does what he has done in the past. He sends out spies. And the spies go to Ai and take a look. And they come back with this report. Don't worry, all the people. It's not that big of a challenge, not that big of a deal. We can just handle them with a small number of men. So on the backdrop of verse 1, we suddenly see here in verses 2 through 9 this development of a sense where there's something absent here, something normal here, but the absence of God in the dependence and the natural trust that they have in their own past success breeds a false sense of confidence. God is not always with us if there's something hidden in our life that needs to be addressed. God is not always with us if there's something hidden in our life that needs to be addressed. In verse 4, they were routed by the men of Ai. And this is the first time that we have, and I think the only time in the exploits of the promised land, that the nation of Israel actually identifies Losing military men in battle. So we have 36 men who then are killed, and the rest of them are chased, routed, and humiliated. Now there's something here about the value of what it's like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
and a follower of Almighty God for the nation of Israel and us in our modern time in Jesus Christ, that we ought to react to that. When there's defeat, how in the world do we respond to that? And Joshua shows us here, he tore his clothes. He was absolutely befuddled. He was in mourning. He was absolutely in spiritual a spiritual renovation for his life. He couldn't figure out what in the world is going on. And he goes before God, and here are some interesting symptoms. When sin is present, and we realize we've got to go before God, if we ever use the why question, which is a subtle way of saying, God, this is obviously your fault because we hadn't done anything wrong, why in the world would you do this to us? Whenever we question God and his character, and we don't understand that first, maybe what we should do is seek out whether there's any sin, disobedience, if there's anything that needs to be cleaned up in our life first. It's a great lesson for us as men influencing lives of other people. So if you have a discipleship group, if you're married and have a family, if you have a group of people at the office that look up to you, if trouble comes and disaster visits, and we're surprised by it, and the first thing we do is we go to God and says, God, why? why in the world did you do this? Why in the world did you allow this to happen? Maybe the first thing we ought to do instead is ask, God, is there sin among us? Is there sin in my life? Is there sin in the lives of the people that I'm leading? Let's get that all straightened up first before we ever ask God, why in the world did you lead us into this difficult situation? In verse 9 here, what in the world will we do for your own great name? And I love this part about Joshua, even though in the midst of being separated from God because of the sin of someone else. He is concerned, first and foremost, about the reputation of Almighty God. We represent you, God, here on this earth. Now that we face this defeat, people are going to laugh at you because of our failing. This is what we don't want. We don't want your name, God, to be discredited whatsoever. Now, in this uh, situation, uh, Joshua is down in his face, and he's prostrate before the Lord. And this is, this is one of those moments where... God speaks to him in a powerful way, which there was no dialogue before they entered into the battle with AI. What are you doing down there on your face? Get up. Sometimes spiritual prostration is not the answer for seeking God's direction in our life. Sometimes it is not prayer. Sometimes it is not spiritual devotion. Sometimes the reality is simply, we must address this one issue called sin. I don't know uh, where you guys are, but I I remember being part of a church uh, elder board and uh, seeking men to disciple and encouraging other men to step it up the next level of leadership. And I spent some time with a good friend and he uh, came to the church and I was excited to see him and his family and we got acquainted again. And uh, as time went on, I I remember going out to to lunch with him and saying, look, I'm just really excited that you're here. And want to put you on a fast track, if we can, to bring you into a position of influence and leadership in the church. You obviously have great training and great skills and ability. There's a long moment of silence after I'd given, given that uh, very well-rehearsed, enthusiastic, encouraging <laughs> diatribe. <laughs> and he looked at me, and then he looked down. He says, no, I can't do that, Bruce. I says, what do you mean you can't do that? He says, well, there's something in my life that's just not been well known by other people, and I just, I just, I just don't want anybody to find out about it. I says, what in the world could be so bad? He says, well, I, I've just got this awful temper, and my wife knows it, my kids know it. 
And so I've just felt so guilty that I've never been able to get that under control. And I don't want to get up there as a leader in the church and see my wife's face out there and see my children's face out there. And they're wondering, why in the world am I up here as an example of a spiritual leader when I fly off the handle like that? I said, well, man, if, if you know what it is, and you know the Bible so well, and obviously you know what God wants you to do about it, if you, you've got a sin in your life, you've got to take care of it. Take care of the sin. Don't just hide from it. And man, that conversation went nowhere. And to this day, that really good friend of mine, who knows the Bible incredibly well, still has never stepped into spiritual leadership. But every time he's gone through crisis in his life, and some of the deep, deep valleys, when I've been close to him, I was there with him. And I walk with him. And I just never, ever brought up the issue, but I was always present with him. We have that kind of amazing trust. But I keep thinking to myself, what great ability is going to waste because he knows what he needs to address and he can do it before Almighty God and he doesn't do it. One of the things about us men is that we all have secrets. And the question is, if that secret is a sin... And we need to address it before Almighty God. Just take care of it. We might be thinking to ourselves, like Aiken does here, well, no one will find out. Oh, this is just a little thing. Oh, no one will know. I've been living my life in sandals that haven't worn out for decades. I've been wearing the same clothes that haven't been wearing out for decades. I've been eating this stupid food called manna. God's been miraculous in all those ways, but I'm not satisfied. If this is not just about sin, it's about how we as human beings are not satisfied with God's miraculous provision in our lives. We think we deserve better shoes. We think we deserve better clothes. We think we deserve better food to eat. And even though God miraculously provides the basics, and Achan was one of the ones who experienced all those amazing miracles through the wilderness for decades, still he was unsatisfied to the point where he says, I'm going to advance my position. No one's going to miss this gold. No one's going to miss this silver. There's so much here. And Jericho was known to be the fashion center of the Middle East. And this garment was there. And Achan saw it. He liked it. So he wanted to dress better. So he took the gold, the silver, and this clothing. An amazing phenomenon. Resolving the problem of sin is something that we can never just play with. Israel had sinned. The entire nation had sinned because one person had done it. Now, in this whole process, when we think about why why in the world the nation of Israel could not stand against the enemy, it is a phenomenal experience to think that one person caused the death of over 30 people and the humiliation of an entire nation. And for God to be angry with the entire nation because of one person. That could be one of us. If there's something in our lives that we've been hiding, that we haven't taken care of before God, man, oh man, we we got to take care of it because if God gets angry at us, he might judge our whole family. He might judge all my relatives. He might judge the church I'm a part of. He might judge whatever place I'm at because of a sin that I am hiding. God says to Joshua, go consecrate the people. You cannot stand until you remove this sin. You can't just ignore it. You can't just say time will take care of it. Time heals all things. This is not that deal. Sin has to be addressed right away. 
face to face, squared up. So Joshua sends his men, and he calls them all forward by tribe. And then God chooses a tribe, and he announces here that when this person's found, there's going to be judgment by fire. Can you imagine being aching and being hearing about all this? All the people who are there, all divided up by tribes. And the judgment says, there's one person here among us who sinned, and they will be discovered. And when they are discovered, they will be judged by fire. What must he be thinking through this whole time? Why doesn't he come forward? Sin has a way of making us think that as long as it is hidden from the eyes of men, it can never be discovered. So how in the world does this whole thing go when Joshua then finds him and he says, My son, give glory to the Lord. Tell me what you have done. Give praise to the Lord. Isn't it interesting that in confession and in a place where confession can take place, this whole concept that God can be praised through us getting cleansed, even when judgment falls upon sin. It is a theological mystery through this whole process that Joshua could be so positive about bringing glory to God when sin is addressed. But that is a theological fact. Achan says, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, finally, when he's pointed out, after the entire nation is wondering who in the world this culprit is. I saw, I coveted, and I took them. Isn't that fascinating? He shares with us the process of sin. He sees... But there is an appetite that has been developed before the seeing occurred. And then there was a longing to have this. And then he took what his eyes wanted him to have. In this process here, the judgment of inevitable sin is going to come. And the messengers took this uh, young man. And there he, they found uh, this silver and this gold and everything that was uh, there that was taken. And he brought them to Joshua before the Lord. And uh, he took Achan to the valley of Achor, and when he brought him there, he said to them, you've brought all this trouble upon the nation of Israel. And they stoned him. And they stoned him, and then they burned him. But as a result of all of that, isn't it amazing? Then the Lord turned from his anger. One man, one sin, caused all of this trouble upon the nation of Israel. Gentlemen, Let's make sure we don't want to be that one person whose sin brings God's judgment against many, many people and his anger would burn against them. When I was uh, studying this passage here in John Joshua 7 and thinking, how in the world do you present this whole concept of something so small that can cause such a great, horrific result? And as I was contemplating this, this is the picture that came to mind. Something so small that caused something so cataclysmic that it brought horror in the lives of many people when something so small failed. Remember this picture? January 28, 1986. I was teaching at a seminary in Oregon, and I'd ridden my bike to work. I got my, my briefcase and all my notes, and I headed to class, and all my students were in class, and I was surprised that they were so somber. Usually we have such great time and fellowship and joy and delight, but there was this somberness over the class. I said, everyone looks so sad. What's up? I said, haven't you heard? I said, heard what? And they told me about this disaster in the skies with Challenger disintegrating before the eyes of so many people. 
Seven special lives are lost. Lives ended. Very special lives died that day because of something so small known as an O-ring and the solid rocket booster on the right side. When that O-ring failed, something so small, it caused the, the eruption and incredible emission of, of gases that engulfed the Challenger, and because of that, the aerodynamics just broke it all apart. And when the compartment holding these amazing astronauts hit the ground, hit the, hit the, hit the ocean, the lives of those people ended. And when I think about the astronauts, and one of the great privileges that I thought about coming to Houston when we moved here, one of the first things we did was we went down to NASA to visit that incredible place. And what a great sense of pride, and what a great sense of, wow, these people are really smart. And we went through the entire tour, and we're just marveling and Googling and everything that was there. But on the tour that we were on, and they have different color tours, and the tour that we were on was very special because at the end of the tour, they stopped the tram, and they pointed out a circle of trees on the yard that represented all the astronauts whose lives were lost in the exploration of space. Boy, that was a quiet moment. The tour guide didn't have to tell us to be quiet. Everyone just sat there, and there was a moment of meditation, I think, on all of our parts. And I remember thinking very much about that picture of the Challenger when it disintegrated before the eyes of so many people. Something so small can end up with such great disaster, hurting the lives of many people. Gentlemen, before God and on our privacy, let's just make sure that we determine never to be the one person who causes God's judgment to fall on the lives of other people. If there is a secret sin, let's take care of it. Because the grace and mercy of God are far more welcoming than we could ever possibly imagine trying to ignore that sin. How in the world can we make it easier for men to get lives that are clean before God so that the secrets are no longer buried, but instead uncovered and given to God before he ever has to bring the problem of judgment to us? One of my great um, joys is dealing with men's ministries, and, and we, we have a hard time because the whole shift of men's ministry from 10 years ago to now, it is really fighting this shift. We want so much to challenge men to step out in the name of Jesus Christ and do something great in his name, but we're constantly being drugged back into helping men deal with the baggage of their past because they won't look at a passage of Scripture like Joshua 7 Say, let's take care of what is gone on. Let's uncover the sin and bring it to the cross. Let's get clean before Jesus Christ. Because then amazing greatness in the name of the Savior can be had by all of us if we simply step forward in the name by faith and mercy and grace. Take care of that sin so God doesn't turn away from us and instead turn his anger toward us. Very powerful lesson, man. It's not a guilt deal. It's actually a lesson on freedom and liberty and release 
and anticipation of greatness in the name of what Jesus Christ can do for us because he's made the way for sin to be dealt with. All we have to do is apply it, and God will do amazing things. Have a great table talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.